your word, we thank you that your word is life to us, that it brings us to life. And Lord, we pray that you would um, do good work in us this morning. As your word comes to us, please, would it open our hearts to love you. Lord, please be here in the power of your Holy Spirit to transform us. Um, we long to know you better. Our hearts are hungry for you, uh, and our hearts want to be more hungry for you than they are. So um, please transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I want to begin by introducing you to a hero that you've probably never heard of. I have his picture here. We can put it up on the screen. This guy's a hero, okay? His name was Ignaz Zemmelweis. Zemmelweis. Um, Zemmelweis is German for red roll. Um, and uh, you might not have heard of Ignaz Zemmelweis, but every day you benefit from a discovery that he made. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of his sad story. Uh, Ignaz Zemmelweis was born in 1818 in Budapest, Hungary. Uh, his family was wealthy, and Ignaz trained, was trained at the University of Vienna to become an obstetric doctor. In 1846, he was appointed chief resident of the first obstetrical clinic of the Vienna General Hospital. And uh, it was a free clinic to help poor families. Um, but his clinic had a big problem. The mothers who came there were dying. Uh, so his clinic had a maternal mortality rate of over 10%. Uh, so one in 10 mothers who came to him for help left in a coffin. The mothers were dying of infection, of childbirth fever. And Dr. Zemmelweis was devastated by this reality and he wrote, it made me so miserable that life seemed worthless. What was doubly distressing was that Vienna had a second clinic, a second obstetrical clinic, and the mortality rate over there was drastically lower. It was below 4%. And the women who were, uh, who, who were delivered to his clinic for help would beg him to be transferred to the other one because they all knew the difference. So poor Dr. Zemmerweis devoted himself to solving this mystery. What was the difference? We had two clinics. They were in the same town. They had the same climate. They followed the same practices, even the same religious practices. And it wasn't to do with overcrowding, because the second clinic was much more crowded than his. So what was the difference? And in 1847, he got a big clue, because uh, there was a post-mortem examination that happened at his clinic. And one of uh, his fellow doctors, who was helping with the uh, post-mortem, was accidentally poked with the scalpel. Um, and that doctor died of a very similar kind of fever that the mothers were all dying of. And so Dr. Zemmelweis suddenly realized why his clinic was different from the other one. And it was because his clinic was connected to the university and it was full of med students. Right? Filthy med students. Um, and, the, and the same students who were performing post-mortems on dead patients were then going straight over to attend to living mothers. And they were transmitting infection. He didn't know how, but somehow. So he immediately instituted a new policy. He required that all his students and doctors start washing their hands in a chlorine solution before they went to deliver babies. And so they did. And the new policy had an immediate and dramatic effect. The maternal mortality rate in his clinic dropped 90%. The change is well documented. So in April in 1847, <coughs> excuse me, 
Before handwashing started, the maternal mortality rate hit a high of 18.3%, that's April 1847. And then handwashing started in mid-May, and in June of the same year, the mortality rate was 2.2%. July was 1.2%, August 1.9%, and for two months in the following year, mortality in his clinic dropped to zero. So Dr. Zemmelweis had obviously solved the problem, and he became an advocate for handwashing everywhere. But to his surprise, the response he got from the medical community was distinctly unfriendly. People didn't believe him. The germ theory of disease had been proposed more than 300 years before, but it was still held in scorn in Vienna. So Dr. Zemmelweis was ridiculed and some of his fellow physicians were offended at the idea that they needed to wash their hands. Because after all, they were gentlemen. How could their hands be unclean? <laughs> Dr. Zellweiss was unable to demonstrate the science behind his discovery, and in 1865, at the age of 47, he suffered a nervous breakdown. He was committed to an insane asylum, where two weeks later, he was beaten by the guards, and in one of history's bitterest ironies, Dr. Zemmelweis contracted septicemia from the beating, and he died, because the guards who beat him hadn't washed their hands. Less than a decade later, Louis Pasteur had published the definitive proof of germ theory that vindicated Zemmelweis and transformed medical practice forever. So today, it's obvious that Dr. Zemmelweis was right. None of us would dream of going into surgery with a surgeon who hadn't washed his hands. We would sue someone who failed to do that. Dr. Zemmelweis was right, and the measurable change in his clinic backed him up, but that didn't stop him from being scorned and opposed. And I share this story because in the beginning of the letter of 1 John, John comes to us in the role of Dr. Zemmelweis. He comes in the role of a man who's made a life-changing discovery that has implications for the way we live. So that's what we're looking at today. You can turn there now. Uh, the beginning of the letter of 1 John is on page 1021 of the Church Bibles. 1021, the beginning of 1 John. So today we're going to kick off a new sermon series in this letter of 1 John, and it's going to take us all the way through into May. Um, so today we only have the first four verses to look at, but if you love this letter and you're excited to be studying it, then good news, we're going to do the whole thing over the next few weeks, so come back. Um, today all we have to do is verses 1 through 4, but I want to talk about the way that John introduces his letter by thinking about three things, his discovery the response, and the result of acceptance. His discovery, the response, and the result of acceptance. So first we have the discovery. So the letter of 1 John begins with the words, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. So notice how very sensory that first verse is. Our eyes, our ears, our hands, it's focused on the experience of the senses. Now remember that in first century letters, the author would often begin by introducing himself and giving his credentials, right? His credentials for writing. So you might have a letter that said, 
I, Crispus, ambassador of the king, greet you. Or Paul might begin with, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He's introducing himself, and he's giving his own credentials, right? Um, well, here are John's credentials at the beginning of this letter. His credentials are simply that he was there. Right? That he got to examine something firsthand, to examine it closely and see it and hear it and touch it and smell it and prod it and examine it and test it and turn it over and discover for himself that this thing in front of him was something special. So John's not writing on the authority of his great learning or his great genius or his high position, but simply as an ordinary guy who was there and who saw something. He's writing as an eyewitness. Uh, and the implication is that if any of us had stood there by his side and seen what John saw and heard what he heard, we would have made the same discovery that John made. John repeats it here in a very few words, but they're very big words, and they connect to what he said already in his gospel. John made the astonishing discovery that the man Jesus was from the beginning. That means that he pre-existed everything. That Jesus was himself the word, the logos, the organizing principle of the whole universe. And that Jesus was himself life, the eternal life. That he had life in himself and that he was the source of all life. John says that those things were made plain to his own senses. So the invisible things of God were made visible to him, right in front of him, and were made tangible. The magnificent, distant, eternal, and generative power of God was made available for a fragile, temporary man to examine. So John says in verse 2 that the life was made manifest. So the invisible source of life was made manifest. It appeared. It was revealed. The word manifest comes from the same Greek root as our word epiphany. It's a Greek root that means to shine or to reveal. And John says the life was made manifest and we have seen it. So he didn't find it because he was particularly wise or good or because he looked hard or because he had a great idea. He was just an ordinary guy, a fisherman. And he saw it only because he was there when it was revealed, when it appeared. Now, can you imagine seeing anything or anyone and recognizing that this thing in front of you, this thing you were hearing and touching was actually the eternal source of all life? How would you know what that looked like? How would you have categories to talk about it? But John says... That's what happened to him. That's what he saw. It was an amazing and life-changing discovery and one that he now wants to share because this discovery changes everything. If we can know and experience for ourselves the eternal source of all life, then we'll drop the other things we're doing and do that, right? So John made a discovery that he wants to share. Now second, let's think about the response that he met with when he shared it. How might we expect a discovery like this to be received? If it's true, then it's worth a big party, isn't it? Shouldn't we say, that's wonderful, John. Thank you, John, for telling us what you saw. Shouldn't the truth, when it comes, be as evident to us as it was to him? 
But in reality, that wasn't the most common reaction that John got to his message. And nor is it the most common reaction his message gets today. Much more often, it's the exact opposite. So when John's message about Jesus comes to people who haven't heard it, most often the response is skepticism or hesitation or hostility. And so I'm struck by how similarly the world responds uh, to John as it responded to Dr. Semmelweis. Uh, we know that Dr. Semmelweis was right, and that's obvious to us now. He made a life-changing discovery. It's good news. Mothers don't have to die in childbirth anymore. But what kind of response did he get at the time? He got scorn and opposition. And this is a strange thing about the world and the people in it. So there was a German philosopher in the 19th century called Arthur Schopenhauer. He's not a man I generally agree with, uh, not least because he was an atheist. Um, but he made this observation. He said, all truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. And third, it is accepted as being self-evident. Isn't that astonishing? I'll say that again. All truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. And third, it is accepted as being self-evident. It makes no sense, except that we see it happening all the time. Think of poor old Copernicus and his heliocentric model of the solar system, or Einstein struggling against Newtonian physics, or the scorn that was poured on heavier-than-air flight. You think that machine will fly? The experience of Dr. Zemmelweis isn't the exception, it's the rule. So if you discover something true and important, and you want to tell people, and you expect they're going to be pleased about it, and happy to hear it, and that they'll thank you for telling them, then you're very likely to be disappointed. Here's how we should expect that it's going to go. You tell them once, and they laugh at you and say, you're an idiot. You tell them twice, and you get, you're wrong, and you better shut up now. Three times, and you get, of course, dummy, everyone knows that. <laughs> messenger, right? Um, so you could say from history that the worst fate that could befall a person in this world is to discover something true and important. The worst fate. Most of our greatest champions of knowledge had miserable lives, and it only gets worse if the discovery has implications for the way people live their lives. Heaven forbid. Who here today would be glad to trade places with a climate change scientist? And so it was for John. He made an astonishing and wonderful and important discovery. And he inherited a whole heap of trouble with it. So in chapter 2 of this letter, he talks about antichrists, false teachers who corrupted his message. In chapter 3, he talks about struggling against the devil. In chapter 5, he talks about having to overcome the whole world. And then he says in 5 verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So he found that getting his message out was hard going. And then according to tradition, John's message eventually took him to Rome, where he was tortured for his witness by being thrown into a vat of boiling oil. Um, but God miraculously saved his life from that. So then the Roman authorities, they didn't try to kill him again. They just exiled him onto the island of Patmos, where he died alone. That was the thanks he got for sharing his message. The poor messenger. All John did was report faithfully what he had seen and heard. All he did was call him like I saw him. But he met with a whole lot of the first two kinds of responses. The ridicule and the violent opposition. 
So if history teaches us anything, it's that truth is often unwelcome. People are generally bad at recognizing it, and we should have a little humility when other people share their discoveries with us. So when John tells you that he saw life itself made manifest in human form, do you believe him? Do you wholeheartedly and unhesitatingly believe him? And if not, then why not? Is it because it seems so incredible? But don't we believe many incredible things? Things that centuries of people found too marvelous to be believed. And yet they were true. Microscopic germs are incredible. Cosmic orbits are incredible. Heavier-than-air flight is incredible. And we don't have any trouble now believing in any of them. Somebody else discovered them for us, and we were taught it, and we believe it. Or maybe you say, I'll believe it when I see it. But is that the way you really live in the rest of your life? Before you first washed your hands, did you go out and buy a microscope so you could see germs in action? Before you took your first flight, did you read a book on aerodynamics and conduct your own wind tunnel tests of a model aeroplane wing? Before you microwaved your first TV dinner, did you conduct a series of experiments to determine the resonant frequencies of the water molecule? <laughs> no, you didn't. So you believe many, many things you have never seen for yourself, most even. The seeing is believing motto is nonsense. It's ludicrous to pretend that we don't live every day in the light of a thousand discoveries that were made by other people, ones that our own senses never got anywhere near. Doubting Thomas refused to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until he saw it for himself. And so the risen Jesus did appear to Thomas, but he said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus said that not seeing and believing was going to be the new normal, and it would carry the greater reward. But maybe we still doubt because of the scorn and opposition the message of Jesus has met with around the world. And indeed it has. No question. But, we, but won't we acknowledge, in the light of Dr. Zemmelweis, that the scorn of the world doesn't make a message any less likely to be true? Maybe it's even the opposite. The world is very good at scorn, and it has scorned very many true things. Maybe, in the end, our reason for doubt is not so different from the gentleman surgeons at the time of Dr. Zemmerweiss. They refused to consider that their hands could be unclean, and they were offended at the idea. And perhaps, in reality, we're not so different. We doubt the message about Jesus because it's inconvenient to believe it, because it offends our pride. But you probably noticed that this attitude reflected very poorly on those snobbish surgeons. Um, we recognize now how very arrogant and unattractive that was, and we should consider that following in their footsteps makes us no different. So are we left with any good reasons for doubt? Question your doubts, because John tells us here that he saw life itself made manifest in human form, and the treasures in the whole rest of this book of 1 John are unlocked when we wholeheartedly and unhesitatingly believe him. So I want to start talking about that now by looking at verses 3 and 4 and thinking about the result of acceptance. 
John says in verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So here John gives us his motivations for writing. Uh, here's why he tells the story of what he saw, even though it brings him a whole lot of trouble. He tells it and bears witness, he says, so that you who hear it may have fellowship with us. Fellowship. Fellowship is a powerful and beautiful word. Uh, we've made it much too cheap in the church. We use it to mean a snack and a joke with a friend. Um, but the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. And it means having things in common. Like it says of the early church in Acts 2 verse 44, that they held all things in common. And specifically here in 1 John, John talks later on about believers having a common father, that we have the same heavenly father, that's in chapter 2 verse 23, and a common saviour. Jesus has rescued all of us, that's here in chapter 1 verse 7, and a common Holy Spirit to live within us. That's later on in chapter 4, verse 13. So we have the same Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in common. And that makes mincemeat of our differences. It unites us more intimately than any human family. So that's what John means by fellowship. It's life sharing and love at a family level. So when John says, we proclaim it to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, it's deeply personal. John is saying, I want family love between us. I want to share life with you and have you live with me forever. Right? That's much more relational. It's a much more relational motivation for evangelism than we usually think about. John shared his discovery and wanted people to believe him, not so that he'd be thanked, nor so that he'd be vindicated and proved right, and not even so that people would believe the truth and be saved, but mostly so that he could add them to his own family and love them and enjoy fellowship with them. Isn't that beautiful? And he adds in verse 4, and so that our joy may be complete. In other words, our joy in this discovery only lacks you to share it. Mm. Mm. The last thing I'll say from these verses is that John had many experiences that we cannot share, but there's one that we can share. We can't share John's experiences of seeing the man Jesus, of watching him go about his day, of hearing him teach and asking him questions. We can't touch Jesus or hug him or clap him on the back or shake his hand, all the things that John got to do. But John says there's something even better than that that we can experience. Beyond just a leap of faith based on somebody else's discovery, we can taste and see for ourselves. And it's this, he says in verse 3, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Right? So our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. And, and that's a discovery that John made that we can share. He wasn't just making an empty boast, like, I'm a super holy man who shares a common life with the Father and the Son. No, it's not empty-headedness. It's another discovery. John says that through Jesus, he's experienced being folded into the family of God. He knows the love of God and the acceptance of God. And he enjoys intimacy with God in his daily life. And he says that's something that everyone can have too. Because being folded into the fellowship with God's people is being folded into fellowship with God himself. They happen at the same time and it's a reality 
that we can all experience. And this experience proves to our own hearts that John's testimony about Jesus is true. So we might begin by trusting the testimony and the discoveries of other people. We believe them, their witness, but then we come to experience the truth of what they were saying for ourselves. Because we realize what John meant by fellowship and how we can really love each other, and also we know the communion with God. And we recognize that we ourselves have been somehow changed. And the whole Christian life springs out of this fellowship. That's why John starts here in this letter with this idea of fellowship. Um, Christianity turns out not really to be a new way of behaving. Many people think that's what it is, just a set of rules. And Christianity does have a moral standard, but that's not what's at the heart of it. It's not just a new way of behaving, and neither is it just a new way of believing. Although, of course, faith is important too. But really, Christianity is first of all a new way of being. It's being transformed and remade by God, a new creation coming into fellowship with God the Father and the Son describes an ontological change. It's a change of being. And John says that that metamorphosis has to come first and then all the rest can follow. So I want to speak directly for a moment to anyone who's here this morning who doesn't think that they believe John's message. Maybe you're not sure yet that the man Jesus was divine, that he was the eternal word of God, the one who had life in himself. Or maybe you're not ready to call yourself a Christian, one of his followers. I know that's the case for some of you who come here regularly on Sunday mornings, and maybe it's also true for some who are just visiting today. I want you to know how welcome you are. Thank you for being here. Thank you for giving up your Sunday morning to come and be with us. Thank you for listening to me. And thank you for considering the things that we're saying. And I'm hoping that you've already experienced in this community it, that it's a loving and welcoming place. And I want you to interpret that through what John says here in this letter. Because what you're seeing here is koinonia in action. That's fellowship in action. It's what it looks like when people share in this common life, when God remakes them and brings them into his own family. If you think that it feels different from other communities that you've experienced, that's right. It does. It is different. And that's why. But I also want to be clear that so far, you've only experienced this fellowship from the outside. Not because we want to exclude you, but by your own reluctance to come in. And John says that the full experience of fellowship with others and with God is reserved for the ones who believe in his message, that Jesus is the source of life. So once again, I invite you in. Come in and know this new life of God from the inside. We want fellowship with you. That will make our joy complete and if you find that you're ready to come in today, we'd love to know about it and to pray with you. So what you can do is that as you come up for communion, you can raise your hand like this and we'll say a prayer for you. Or during communion a bit later on, we'll have people standing at the back of the church ready to pray with you. And you can go and tell them what you've decided. No one is excluded. And John's discovery can be a life-changing message for all of us. Amen.